So we're looking at Numbers chapter 25, where we'll be uh, reading verses 1 to 9. It says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the angle of the the Lord was kindled against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Are there some realities, some truths that are so contrasting that they just kind of blow our minds sometimes? Like, for example, I, was, uh, I dropped Stephanie off to work last week, and I uh, drive down the road. I'm going to, back towards the thruway. I come up to this stoplight, stop and it's blinking red, and it's green at the same time. Never seen anything like this before, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to just go through it? Am I supposed to treat it as a stop sign? Am I supposed to just stop and wait for the red blinking light to, to go away? Then as I got a little bit closer, it became yellow and blinking red. This got even more confusing. So am I supposed to treat it as a stop sign? Stop. What am I supposed to do? Then as I got there, it turned blinking red. So I'm like, all right, at least that's clear. It's a stop sign. Treat it as a stop sign. And then I look to my right and see the other street uh, where there's cars on. And so they had gotten there before me. So I'm waiting for them to go. They're not going. Apparently they had a red light. And so I'm like, I guess I just go through, hoping that doesn't turn green on this other side street. So I slowly make my way through there and got through that very confusing intersection. Doesn't make sense. Green light, flashing red light at the same time. There's some things that don't make sense morally. For example, there's a man named uh, Dennis Rader. Uh, he was a leader in his church, Boy Scout leader. Uh, his family would have described him as a loving person. Uh, he was described as being a good father, a devoted husband. Uh, but he had a dark side. People outside of the family described him as angry, nasty, egotistical. And it was determined, they discovered, that he was actually a serial killer. And this was so shocking because he was, for all intents and purposes, a good family man. Uh, while his daughter, uh, while his wife was pregnant with his daughter, he actually was murdering people. He would go and he would pray with his daughter at nighttime, talk to her about godliness, and then go and murder families. It's just so stark, so contrasting to have someone who's a good family man and someone who's killing families at the same time. There's truths like that, realities that are just so contrasting, they just kind of blow our minds. I think that's kind of what happens in this passage. We look at this passage, and just to recap where we were, uh, last week we talked about the story of Balaam and the donkey. 
And uh, Israel was kind of on the war path. Israel went and defeated the people of Bashan. They defeated the Amorites. And so they come to the plains of Moab, and the king of Moab named Balak thinks to himself, all right, Israel's going to take us out as well. So Balak comes up with this plan. All right, we're going to call this diviner, witch-type person named Balaam who has these spiritual powers, and we're going to get Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel. And so at first Balaam didn't come, and then he, 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 goes, he goes to Balak, and he's going to curse the Israelites. And uh, we talked about what happened on the way. Uh, but then after that, Balaam gets to Balak, Balak's like, all right, curse the people of Israel. Curse them so that uh, we'll be able to defeat them. And so Balaam tells Balak to, to offer these sacrifices, to put these different things together. And then Balak, Balaam gives this oracle, the speech, and rather than cursing Israel, he actually blesses Israel. Balak starts to get angry, like, I, I brought you here, I hired you to curse Israel, but you'd bless them. So Balaam opens his mouth Again, it's blessing. Four times, Balaam opens his mouth and gives an oracle of blessing on the people of Israel. And, and the way that Balaam blesses Israel is quite incredible. Look at the th- a portion of the third blessing of Israel uh, described in Numbers 24, by, 5 to 9. Balaam says, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break the bones, their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and a lioness. Who will rouse him? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. So you have these incredible statements of blessing where Balaam blesses uh, Israel and talks about how they're going to be planted like cedars beside the water, that God is going to give them victory, that everything is going to go well with them. The ones that bless them will be blessed. The ones that curse them will be cursed. And it seems like everything is great, and then it's kind of shocking the reality, the contrasting reality we see in chapter 25, verses 1 to 9. This people who are blessed, who are going to experience victory, are, it says in the text, whoring after other gods, whoring with the daughters of Moab, yoking themselves to the false god Baal. Then we see this judgment upon the people of Israel, and this plague comes upon them. We see this kind of weird episode with this man named Phinehas who kills a man and a woman. So how do we get there? How do we get from blessing, victory, to idolatry, sexual immorality, and ultimately judgment? Well, on the surface, it's kind of puzzling how we get there. But the Scriptures give us kind of an indication of of what transpired to bring Israel to that point in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 2. It says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So that gives us a little bit of context of what's happening here. So what's happening? So Balak calls Balaam, curse the people of Israel. 
Balaam's like, I, I can't curse a people who God has chosen to bless. I mean, I can, I can just keep speaking oracle after oracle. The only thing that's going to come out is blessing. I can't change that. But then Balak apparently wants to get in the good graces of Balak, maybe wants to make some money. So he says, all right, Balak, this is how you're going to get them. I, I can't get God to curse them, but maybe you can get them to turn their back on God. I can't get God to turn their back, his back on them, but maybe you can get them to turn their back on God. And if you can get them into sinful practices and idolatry, they're going to trip up and falter. And I think this is the time-tested technique that the enemy of God's people always uses. Satan always uses the same technique. Satan knows the truth that the gates of hell cannot stand against the church of Jesus Christ. He knows that God has determined to bless his church. But a time-tested approach that he's used is to try to make God's people stumble and their witness ineffective by leading them into sin, straying from their relationship with God. And specifically, there's two things that Balaam, Balaam tells Balak to tempt Israel with. The first thing he tempts them with is sexual immorality. Balaam tells Balak to get the people of Israel to do things that God has forbidden. Uh, in this case, it was probably both adultery and marrying other nations. Uh, the word that's used is whoring after the daughters of Moab, probably indicating adultery. Um, and then intermarrying with them. When we think about why wouldn't God want them to marry these other nations? This was not a racial thing. This was not racial at all. This was a spiritual thing. The reason that God didn't want them to intermarry with these other nations is because always in Israel's history, whenever they intermarried with other nations, what would happen is they would take their gods. They follow after these false gods rather than following the true God. You know, and people talk about missionary dating, and, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date this person. They're going to become a Christian. And usually, sometimes that happens. But usually it's like the weak person actually brings the stronger person down. And that's why God forbids intermarrying uh, people of other nations who are idolaters, who worship idols. And yet they take part in this. And we think about this temptation that uh, Balak uh, gave to uh, the people of Israel. And I think that this issue has probably been the biggest stumbling block in the church, maybe throughout its history, but definitely within the last 50 to 100 years. I mean, you go back to the 80s, and it kind of started with Jimmy Swagger. Uh, he was kind of the first big, high-profile person uh, where this became a stumbling block. Uh, he had um, he was, his, his messages were on like 3,000 radio TV stations, had a uh, people listened, about 200, uh, 2 million people listened throughout the United States. Uh, he had this kind of cult following. He had his own Bible school. Uh, everybody thought he was this wonderful man. And, and then it came out that he was uh, soliciting prostitutes. And actually it was discovered uh, apparently by uh, uh, this other evangelist, kind of rival evangelist named Jim Baker, who Turned out he was actually doing some of the same things. He was committing adultery. He was involved in stealing uh, from, from God's church. And then you get kind of closer to present day. Uh, several years ago, I think it was the early 2000s, you had the case of the mega church pastor Ted Haggart who was caught with male prostitutes. And uh, then most recently, uh, last year, uh, Rabbi Zacharias passed away and uh, 
when he passed away, it was really a tragic situation because uh, there were so many people that came to his funeral or, or wrote things about him and talked about uh, the influence he had on people's lives and how he had uh, done so much for the cause of Christ. An amazing apologist, amazing, amazing writer, amazing speaker. And then it was discovered after that that he had been living a secret life, uh, secret life, prostitution, sexual abuse, all sorts of improprieties uh, that were spanning like decades. And this has been going on for so long. And then of course, the sexual abuse crisis that rocked uh, the, the Catholic Church, but also other churches and ministries as well. It's been a huge stumbling block to the church of the United States in the United States. And, and it's been something that the outside world looks upon and is like, how can what they say be real if this is the reality? Now, we look at these things, and it's like, that's a shame. It's a shame that these leaders would fall into sin and, and would lead, kind of put a, a stain on the, cro- the church of Jesus Christ. And it's true, that is a shame. But I don't think it's something that only has an effect when leaders fall into it. Of course, when a leader falls into a sin like that, they may have a bigger platform. It may have kind of a bigger ripple effect. But it has an effect no matter who we are as believers in Christ when we fall into sexual sin. When I'm talking about sexual immorality, I'm talking about sexual, any sexual activity outside the context of a one-man, one-woman marriage relationship. It has severe effects for anyone, whether you're a Christian leader or not. And these things are not just wrong, not against, against what God has said, but they're also stumbling blocks. They hinder our witness. They hinder our fellowship with God. They hinder our witness first. You know, when we engage in sexual immorality, it harms the marriage covenant. You know, you think about the marriage covenant, it was meant to picture Christ's love for the church, and any kind of sexual immorality puts a stain on that. It paints a picture of the wor- to the world, not of the love of Christ for his church. It's a stained picture. But it also can lead, to, uh, lead us away from our relationship with God. I've told this story before, but I think it bears repeating. Uh, Tim Keller tells about a college pastor that he used to know, and this college pastor would invite uh, students home when they were home on break. They'd invite them for a coffee or whatnot. And uh, they'd be having coffee, and the pastor would ask them, so how are you doing spiritually? And uh, they would kind of hem and haw sometimes, and they'd be like, well, I took this philosophy course, and uh, I'm, I'm just not sure where I stand on things. I'm not sure uh, what I believe about God, kind of the foundations of, of, uh, have been, kind of been shaken. And then he would respond and say, okay, who you been sleeping with? And almost always they would be like, how did you know? It's because sin often leads us away from our relationship with God makes us feel guilty, feel far from God. It makes us feel unworthy. It might prevent us from doing the ministry God has called us to. I, I wonder how many people have failed to answer God's call to ministry because of sexual sin. We may not feel like we can share our faith. We may feel like we're frauds. Eventually, this could lead us to question our faith altogether. I think as human beings, we have a trouble with cognitive dissonance, or psychologists call cognitive dissonance. We have trouble doing things for an extended period of time that we don't believe are right. 
So I was watching this show of Hoarders uh, the other day, and uh, on this particular episode, there was this lady had a 4,000-square-foot house, and it was completely overrun with garbage. Uh, six feet high, uh, you couldn't even walk through the house. You had to climb over these piles. The kitchen was inoperative. She had nowhere to cook because the kitchen was just covered in garbage. The toilet didn't work. Uh, there was no running water. She couldn't take a shower. Um, she could, didn't have a place to sleep even. She didn't have a bed. And so she's describing these things to the counselor and to these cleaning experts. And she had lived this way so long that she was trying to convince them that the way that she was living was actually good. She was saying, well, you know, people say I don't have a kitchen, but I don't need a kitchen. I've never had a kitchen. I don't really even want a kitchen. And I, I know I don't have a, a toilet or a shower, and that might be nice to have a shower, but, you know, you just make do with what you have. And I, I don't need a bed. I mean, i got a place to sleep. I find a place among the garbage to sleep. You know, and she's just living in squalor, and somehow she's trying to convince herself and others that this was a good life. This is the way that she should be living. I think the same thing's true happen. The same thing happens sometimes when we're living in perpetual sexual sin. We get to a place where we believe that the squalor that we're living in is the good life. The other thing this lady would do is she would try to argue with the counselor. She'd try to almost blame some of her problems on them. That they didn't understand. That they were trying to, to be mean to her. They were trying to push her around. And sometimes we can do that with God as well. We can get to a point where we say, God, I, you don't understand. Maybe even going so far as say, God, I don't even know if you exist. So that, that's the first thing that Balaam tells Balak to tempt the Israelites with, and that works out splendidly for the plan. Second thing the Israelites were invited to, uh, to that Balaam tells uh, Balak to tempt the Israelites to was they were invited to the sacrifices of false gods of the Moabites. Most likely these were feasts where the sacrifices would be made and the people would eat the sacrificial animals. And remember the complaint that the Israelites brought to, uh, or that the Israelites kept bringing against God again and again and again. What was their complaint? We saw it a few weeks ago in Numbers chapter 21. It says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, water, and we loathe this worthless food. Their complaint was we weren't that they weren't happy with the food that God had provided. They weren't happy with the manna. They wanted meat. And what does this other God provide? Meat. The food that they wanted. And so the temptation, the, ba the, the strategy that... Balaam tells Balak to use and Satan uses is this. Get them to believe that other gods are more satisfying than the true God. Get them to believe that the other gods are more satisfying than the true God. And you can imagine what might have been going through the Israelites' head at this point. They might have thought to themselves, well, this God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, you know, he's brought us out into the wilderness and he never gives us anything good to eat. He never gives us food like this. But this new God, Baal, we just go to his sacrifices, and he provides us all with this good food, what we really want. This is a strategy Satan has been using for millennia. It can take many forms. Satan can come to us and whisper in our ear and say, hey, look at that person over there. 
They have a really good family. They have a lot of money. They seem to not have a care in the world. I wonder if it's really worth following after God. I wonder if it's really worthwhile when you're struggling to pay ends meet, when maybe you don't even have a family. Is following after God really worth it? Or maybe we're struggling uh, with physical difficulties. We're experiencing pain or suffering. And then we look at other people who don't care about God at all, and they're just living a life of ease. Satan comes and is like, is it really worth it? Would a God that's good allow you to experience all of this suffering? Or maybe we're trying to give up an addiction. And as we're trying to give up an addiction, uh, maybe we've experienced severe physical discomfort. And uh, maybe Satan is like, well, you felt a lot better when you were engaging in these things. Maybe you should just give up and go back to that other thing that you were, that you were engaged in. Following after God really isn't all that satisfying. It's a tactic that Satan has used for millennia. Get them to believe that other gods are more satisfying than the true God. We see that God is very angry with what happens in this passage. God's response seems a little extreme at first glance. If you, if you just open up your Bible and look at Numbers chapter 25, it seems a little excessive, the punishment that he prescribes. But when you look at the whole book of Numbers, it makes a little bit more sense. Remember the story of Israel's history from being led out of Egypt. God led the people out of Egypt with a strong hand and outstretched arm. He parted the Red Sea, gives them the law in Mount Sinai. And when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, what are the people doing? They're building an idol to a false god. After God has just delivered them from Egypt. We see that they stage a rebellion against Moses and against Aaron. We see that they complain, grumble against God at least four times we've seen this. It seems like every week we're talking about them complaining. God didn't do this. God didn't do that. They don't believe in God's provision and God's protection. They don't believe that God could really bring them into the promised land. And so now they're engaging in blatant idolatry, have forsaken the God who has been their rock, their protector, provider, and God orders for all the heads of the people to be put to, uh, people of Israel to be put to death. And this doesn't happen for some reason. Uh, apparently, uh, it may have been that Moses didn't have the authority to do this. Uh, Moses, you know, how is he going to put the heads of the people to death? You know, they were the heads of the people. They were the ones with the power, the authority. And so he says, just put the people to death who are engaged in these things and Apparently they don't do that, and a plague comes upon the people of Israel. And really what's happening here is Balak is getting what he wants. He knows he can't get God to curse them, but literally Israel is destroying itself. They're turning away from the one who is their source of strength, and they're turning to idols, and it's become a stumbling block. And I think the same thing is true for us. Since Satan can't convince God to turn his back on us, he'll try to get us to turn our back on God. And in the process, experience the consequences. Since Satan cannot convince God to turn his back on us, he will try to get us to turn our back on God and experience the consequences. See, when we stray from God, whether that's through sexual immorality or idolatry, there are consequences. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus, there may be severe discipline for us. You know, sometimes it will start off kind of small, 
you know, God will kind of give us a gentle nudge. You need to change. You need to repent. And then if we don't listen, it gets a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger. And if we're a believer in Jesus, there's nothing that is too much. He will turn us back. He will put us back on the right path. Just like a father, mother disciplines their child, God will discipline us so that we go on the right path. But others, sometimes people say, well, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, doesn't matter if I turn my back on him or not. Doesn't matter what I do after I become a Christian, I can just do what I want. I'm sorry to say if that's the case, we're probably not Christians. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So we think about this, and it's like, wait a minute. I thought that we were saved by grace through faith. But this text is saying if you live in perpetual sin, perpetual idolatry, then it shows that you're not a believer. So does that mean I can lose my salvation? I don't think it means that at all. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you have faith in him, God's going to keep you on the right path. And you're going to go off and and go your own way sometimes, and God's going to say, oh, no, get back, get back. But if you're just perpetually walking away from God, that's the trajectory of your life. I'm not talking about sin here and there. We all struggle with sin. If the trajectory of your life is walking away from God, then we don't know Him. I mean, that's just what the Scripture teaches. It's almost like, you know, if you have, imagine a man's married to a woman, the woman perpetually cheats on him, And if you want a real-life example of that, look at the book of Hosea. And the husband keeps calling her home, and and if she comes home, then he'll welcome her back as his bride. But if she chooses to never come home, then that marriage doesn't exist. That marriage isn't real. And so there's a stern warning for those who would presume upon the grace of God. If we walk away from him forever then we will be lost. It's a sober warning that we need to return to the source of life. If you've never entered into a relationship with him, to turn to him in repentance. But there's also an incredible reminder of grace in this passage. I love what we see here. It's, it's kind of strange when you read what happens, um, but the way that the Bible kind of brings it together, it just kind of blows my mind and... Um, Really, when I was thinking about this passage this week, it's like you can't make this up. I mean, someone couldn't make these details up. But you think about it, it's kind of strange. First, you have this command that the chiefs of the people are to be put to death and they're to be hung in the daylight, in the sunlight, for all to see. They're actually to be hung most likely on poles. Uh, This was something that would have been a punishment for people who were severely, severely uh, they'd done severely evil things. Not just, you know, maybe someone who not just murdered one peop- person, but murdered a dozen people. It was kind of the worst of punishments, post-mortem desecration. So that was the thing that God prescribed. People don't do that. And then you have this kind of strange episode where uh, this man of Israel goes to this Midianite, takes this Midianite and brings, him home, brings her home into his tent and it, they, he does that in sight of all of Israel. In other words, uh, he's kind of flaunting his sin. Now, remember, 
God's bringing judgment upon the people. There's a plague. God has spoken against what is happening. And you have this Israelite just kind of goes and flaunts his sin, brings this woman into his tent. Apparently, everybody's okay with this, except for a man named Phinehas, who is a descendant of Aaron. And Phinehas goes and he uh, spears this man and woman, kills them. And in the process, the plague is averted. So, What's required for the plague to be averted? The, what's required is either one, that the leaders be hung on a pole, or for the sinners to be pierced. What happened to Jesus? Jesus, he was hung on a tree. He was given the punishment up for the worst of sinners. Look at what it says in the book of John. John 19, 33 to 34 says this. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. Jesus was hung on a tree. His side was pierced for sinners so that the plague of sin could be removed. So it doesn't matter how far we strayed from God. When we turn back to him, we can experience grace. Like the story of the prodigal son. Son who went and spent all of his father's possessions. The father was waiting for him, looking for him, hoping that he would come back. And when he came back, he opened up his arms, threw a robe around him, put a ring around his finger, killed the fatted calf for him. That's the God that we serve because Jesus was crucified and pierced for sinners. And so there's no one who's too far from God's grace. There's no one who's gone too far from experiencing the grace of God. I'd like to close with reading uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and Paul is actually referencing uh, the wilderness wanderings and this uh, episode even, perhaps, in particular. Look at what Paul says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell on a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that it is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And here's the point. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Since Satan can't convince God to turn his back on us, he can try to convince us to turn our backs on God and experience the consequences. Let's not give in to his lies. Let's look at these examples that we've seen in Scripture and let's flee from idolatry and flee to loving arms of our Heavenly Father who gave everything for us, who was hung on a tree, who was pierced for our transgressions so that we might experience grace, so that we might experience life. 
Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your love for sinners. We thank you that even though we all are, are all like sheep who've gone astray, that you paid the ultimate price. Your body was broken. A spear was put through your side so that we might experience life. Lord, help us to flee from anything that would keep us from you. Flee from idols. Help us, Lord, not to give in to the temptation of sexual immorality and thus cause a stumbling block both for ourselves and for the witness of the body of Christ. Help us, Lord, to not buy into the lie of the enemy. When the enemy comes and tells us that other gods are more satisfying, help us to believe by faith the truth that your ways, that your person is better than anything we might experience in this life. That you're better, you're greater than any other gods. Lord, give us the strength. Lord, we all fall short of your glory. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Lord, help us. If we've gone astray, help us to repent today, to turn back to you. And as we do that, we know that we'll find life. We'll find grace in your arms. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.